On the Empire Podcast this week, we return from Edinburgh to the London studio just in time to have a lovely cup of tea and a scone or scone with Agent Carter herself, Hayley Atwell. Uh, plus usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that thankfully is recorded in a lovely air-conditioned studio in this, in the middle of what we in Britain are considering a heatwave, uh, the, be- the biggest one in decades. Uh, we're never going to leave this place. Never. You cannot make us. <laughs> Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, my two melting colleagues of such heat-ridden lethal cunning are... Our arthouse guru, a man who stays cool in a heatwave by simply watching Alan Daylon movies on a loop. Today's triple bill mm-hmm. is Paris Burning, Red Sun and Indian Summer. It's Phil Desemian. How are you? There's actually two films, Chris. The second one's called Red Sun and Indian Summer. <laughs> <laughs> Red you Sun. don't know you're Alan Daylon. I didn't know. Yeah, good, thanks. Well, but no, that is three films. I know it is. I'm sorry. I know. Um, I thought I was sticking in. Uh, yeah. I can never pronounce this because my French is terrible. Plain soleil. <laughs> Purple noon, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the original is Aldic, Mr. Ripley. Yeah, but I, I honestly can't. Plain, plain soleil. Plain soleil. Plain soleil. Plain soleil. Plain soleil. Ah, où est la bibliothèque? <laughs> Which one of those words means sun? Soleil. Bibliothèque. No. Oh. <laughs> noon. Noon. Neither means noon. So what's going on with the translation? So ha- pl- it's like a, it's like a high noon. It, pur- purple sun is like the sort of equivalent of like high noon. Plensole is kind of like. Oh. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. You speak French as well. Uh huh. Thank you for not saying we. Oui. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that person you've just been hearing, uh, if you don't already know, is our geek queen. Um, it's a lady I think could actually be behind this infernal heat wave. It's all part of a plot. I'm guessing to get the Winchester brothers to take their shirts off again, isn't it, <laughs> Helen O'Hara? I have my dragons firing on all cylinders just to heat up the atmosphere. No, of course, Chris, as you know, as we're going to discuss later, I have my fill of topless men this week. So <laughs> Look, I don't need to do that. I put my shirt back on. <laughs> you asked me nicely. <laughs> it's all good now. We're okay. Okay, well, we'll get to that later on. Yeah, heat wave. What was, yeah, this is the hottest, I think, we've been since the end of knowing. Pretty much, yeah. It, I think we were around this temperature in sunshine. Um, yeah. I mean, just just to clarify for for non-British listeners, yeah. this is roughly sort of Australian wintertime temperatures yeah. that we're talking about. Well, here. what's it right now? It's 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 uh, today. Well, yesterday was the hottest July day in a decade, something like that, or maybe even of all time. Who knows? Uh, it was thirty six degrees centigrade because we don't faff around with Fahrenheit over here. What's that in Fahrenheit? A million. I think it's a million. It's 90-something. It's almost a hundred. So, you know, so that gives, it gives you an idea of how, how hot it was for us. The danger is we record this on Thursday and it goes out on Friday. A lot can happen. We could have to come back into the booth. <laughs> can you believe that snow? <laughs> <laughs> this morning, um, this just really caught me by surprise. I, I left in my pants. I, for one, welcome our new icy overlords because <laughs> it's so freaking hot. Uh, we have uh, this week's question which has been sent in via Twitter by at M-E-N-B. It's 007. B 007. His name's Mark Bainbridge, uh, which is very, very close to my hometown, Banbridge. Given that Indy... Oh, yeah, we should probably give some context to this. Well, we'll in a second. Given that Indy has been voted number one character, is there anything positive to say about Crystal Skull? So here's the context. The new issue of Empire, it came out last week. It's now on sale in all good and evil bookstores everywhere and online and all sorts of stuff. And uh, the centerpiece of it is um, a poll that we asked you guys to vote for. Um, I cannot stress that enough. We asked you guys to vote for. And it's a 100 greatest movie characters of all time. 
as voted for, and again, cannot stress that enough, <laughs> by our readers. You're just bitter because Ash isn't number one, aren't you, Chris? I, I, Look, I'm happy that Ash is on the list. Genuinely amazed and astonished that Ash is on the list. Optimus Prime's at 98. I have an issue with that. I, the, you know, there are certain characters that I would like to see in the list, but it's a pretty solid list, I think. You know, there's, there's people in there, you know, it's, it's just hard to argue with. Mm. Mainly because they're fictional characters and they don't answer back, but largely because you know, they're just there. It's incontrovertible. So number one is Indiana Jones from the Indiana Jones trilogy. Yes. Okay, so uh, that's a good choice. Yep. Yeah, totally. Everyone's happy yep. with that. Yep. Um, so Mark Bainbridge is asking, <laughs> in the wake of that, is there anything positive to say about Crystal Skull, which I believe was a fan fiction film made uh, <laughs> after the original trilogy, uh, where they got some of the original cast back, yeah. I think, <laughs> to increase the roles. It was like that episode of Portlandia when they brought back all of the Battlestar Galactica guys and didn't read through at the kitchen table. It was the equivalent of that. <laughs> it's almost exactly like that. Yeah. All right, okay, let's say for the sake of saying... <laughs> That's uh, not Ronald D. Moore. <laughs> Let's say for the sake of saying, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is the fourth Indiana Jones film that it, it, that it exists. Crazy. That okay. we watched it. Yeah. Uh, what is there to say about it? I like the cinematography. So yeah, there are individual shots I like. I like, I think, the basic early idea of sort of Cold War kind of works actually. And, the, and the, the whole, you know going to the warehouse and that I didn't hate I was kind of I was kind of like all right well the the gopher was stupid but this is all right this is fine so so that was okay uh I didn't like the crystal skull Ooh, um Karen Allen Uh she's great still looks amazing Uh liked her Uh uh-huh Phil well it's not really me it's more my brother Nick he sent me an email because he wanted to chip in on this he couldn't be with us today he sent me a list of five things that he does like about the film Oh, okay. uh, number one, the bike chase is very good, although there was going to be a bit where Indy drives across a football field and catches the ball, apparently, but it got cut. Okay. No further explanation on that one, but that sounded like it might be a fun grace note. Number two, Alan Dale is in it for five seconds. <laughs> yep. With, um, with the janitor from Scrubs, Neil Flynn. Yes, he is. That's a good bet, That's clearly. the best scene in the film. Yeah. Um, but it's also a, a, a really um, frustrating scene because basically Alan Dale comes in as Indy's wartime army friend and talks about a movie you'd much rather see he basically goes hey Indy do you remember we had all those adventures during World War 2 and you're going I'd like to see that film please we're trying to be positive yeah. that's right yeah, positive. 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 this positive. negative hate spiral yeah if you can get Alan Dale in your film get him in your film unless Indeed. it's like cast away in which case it would be weird number three he the bit been, he could have been Wilson He'd have been a great Wilson. He might have been a good You're dead right actually three the bit where he walks around the deserted New Mexico town is quite spooky yeah Quite spooky, not very spooky. Until he gets in the fridge. Okay. Four, the way he uses... I disagree with this one. The way he uses gunpowder to find the Ark, didn't think... Well, okay, where well, he throws it up yeah. in the air and it, uh, it yeah, gets attracted okay. by the... And then okay. five, that is it. There is nothing else good about Crystal Skull. Okay, so that's four things, really. <laughs> yeah. He's so he's had like, a stab at it. Kind of misled you there. I like the bit where they do the rocket, the rocket thing and they, the go, it cuts to the gopher family and the gophers tear their eyeballs out and literally <laughs> bury them in the desert. <laughs> and trying to unsee everything they've just seen. It's really That's dark. my favourite bit. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? That's, that happens. Watch, watch closely. Are you sure? Yeah. So in between, there's like a little gopher right to the Lost Ark yes. happening with little gophers squeaking, don't look at it, close your eyes. <laughs> Their face melts. And then a little the horror of what they're witnessing. Like, beep, beep, it's beautiful. This is really <laughs> disturbing. <laughs> That's kind of strange. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's, uh, a, that's a very nice I don't think I like a single thing about this film. Maybe the college chase. It's quite fun. You really don't like a single thing about this film. Not really, no. I, you know, I, as much as I, you know, have 
if you're listening for the first time, um, apologies. But, uh, you know, over the course of the podcast's history, yeah, we've become notorious for, for kicking this film repeatedly. Um, well, we've just denied its existence. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. That's not fascistic at all. <laughs> but, um, um, yeah, but there are good things about it. Number one, Harrison Ford, who is fantastic as Indiana Jones. And it's like the years just haven't happened. You know, never mind the years or the mileage. He's just there and he's Indiana Jones right from the off and he owns the character. The movie leaps off a cliff three mm. times, literally, but it mm. leaps off a cliff metaphorically when Shia Bloody LaBeouf turns up because he's awful in this film. He's an awful character. Uh, and I, I don't necessarily blame him because you don't turn that down. No. Although he would now because, you know, yeah, he's Shia LaBeouf now. Back then he was Shia LaBeouf. Um, you know, prospective young Hollywood starlet and now he's avant-garde hero um, but yeah I think he's, he's terrible he's absolutely terrible in that film um, I think the filming's not great Kate Blanchett does okay but I think the first half hour is okay yeah I the first half hour is alright yeah, it's, it's apart fine. from the gopher and apart then... from the gopher and the nuclear fridge and all that sort of stuff because I saw this film in Cannes and I saw it I was the first no, Damon Wise saw it as well but I was the first person from, from Empire to see it uh, at the Cannes Film Festival and, you know, it got it got a standing ovation almost at the beginning, just for starting, just for existing. There was so much excitement in the room. They were excited about this movie. Mm. And then you could just feel the room deflating as it, as it went along. Not dissimilar to an experience I had this week, actually, with, it, with another film, although we went in with low expectations. But, yeah, and I just, I went out, and then no word of a lie, I walked around Cannes in a funk for a solid hour. You called me, because I was reviews editor at that point. Yeah. And you just sounded more profoundly depressed than most of the time I've known you <laughs> yeah and yeah I just I yeah I couldn't I couldn't I, I just couldn't process what I'd just seen yeah it, it felt it felt weirdly enough and I know that the prequels are terrible terrible films even though someone here gave one of them five stars I know that the prequels are terrible Phil. films but this was yeah. a more profound disappointment for me than any of the prequels it's like how do you get from the truck chase in the first one to the jungle chase in this one it doesn't make. It doesn't. I don't know what what happened. Mm. How does that happen? Mm. He's supposed to be like, progressing and having better effects and better, you know, resources. And it's just so much worse. It's it, just one of the worst action sequences I've ever seen. This is something I've been coming around to. I, I did a lot of reading recently for a piece for the Telegraph on Stan Winston and how he did things with a huge mix of different techniques. His effects were not just animatronic, they weren't just puppets, they weren't just makeup, they weren't just CGI, they were all of them. And he would mix them together to get the perfect result, essentially. You know, look at something like Jurassic Park. Um, Jurassic Park. And I feel like when we, when we only rely on one of those things, it, it just doesn't work properly. Mm. Um, it, it's the difference between The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as well. Um, you know, you, you rely on... You, you use the mix, you use every means available, you get these mm. glorious results. Mm. You rely just on one thing, it doesn't always work quite as well as it should. And that's not to do down, you know, the VFX guys, because I think they can do astonishing, astonishing work. But some things just aren't best suited to VFX, they just aren't. If you want to have your question read out on the Empire podcast, um, thank you Mark Brembridge for yours. Uh, do send them in via Twitter, we're at Empire Magazine, use the hashtag Empire Podcast. You can email us, podcast at empireonline.com and you can Facebook us as well, where we're Empire Magazine. Uh, we'll have another belting question next week. Uh, okay, let's talk about some lovely movie news. Obviously, um, the new Empire is out, which is We'll just talk about that very, very quickly. Yeah. And, you know, then you can go on. So we also have uh, the 100 Greatest Characters, really, really fun feature. We've got lots of cool stuff on 
Walker from Point Break and Tom Hiddleston talking about Loki and some great stuff about Indiana Jones and some very interesting choices in there and Optimus Prime 98. And there's uh, some... Really cool, cool things going on. What else is in the issue? I wrote about Fantastic Four. You did. I've got all the the four and uh-huh. uh, and Pub- the director Pub- and writer. They're sort of addressing all those rumours of of problems on set and difficulties and so on. So mm-hmm. that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it was. Mm, I'm 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 intrigued for that one. I having spoken to them. So so have a read and see what you think. That was an interesting. That was an interesting piece. I thought you wrote yeah, about that. Kind. You got into the. You got into the. The nitty-gritty of, of things going slightly awry with Josh Trank and, and, and everyone else. Yeah. Lots, lots in there. Yeah. So hopefully um, hopefully they've, they've overcome all those problems and, and, and got everything up on screen. But mm. we shall see in a couple of months. Less. Less. At this point. A month. Indeed. In fact. Mm. Aye. I think, am I right in thinking that we, we did an interesting interview with Jake Gyllenhaal as well? We did. Jake Gyllenhaal. Got, we've got a backstory on Superman Thank Lives. You. Thanks, Helen. Just looked it up. There oh, this go. is fun. Yes, because... Um, Okay, there's a documentary coming out called The Death of Superman Lives, which was a Kickstarter-funded documentary, I believe, um, in which the director got incredible access to pretty much everybody who worked in the film. Um, except? Except? Nicolas Cage. Did he get Nicolas Cage? No, he didn't. He didn't get Nicolas Cage. No, he didn't. He got Tim Burton, he got John Peters, he got Kevin Smith. Um, he got some incredible concept art. Um, and that, that's a fun documentary. And uh, we've got... Uh, uh, first look at that with lots of uh, un- unseen concept art as well which is, which is fun mm-hmm. of what could have been we've got a technology profile as well um, about drones which yes. was interesting so more and more films are using drone cameras to, to get their action shots they're sort of replacing the crane shot mm. for a lot of people and uh, it's just sort of looking at what opportunities that offers and how things might change. And then, of course, Mission Impossible, Rogue Nation. Of course, yes. And that was a fascinating one because um, our writer for that, Mark Salisbury, uh, sat down for ages with Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie uh, to get the, the full skinny in that one. So that's very exciting. Yeah, the drone thing's interesting, isn't it? Because um, drones are not only just being... They're, they're not being used as plot devices in movies this mm. summer. So we've, had, uh, we've had drones in Tomorrowland and Poltergeist good, and... Good Kill. Good Kill, Furious obviously. Seven. Furious 7. Uh, but also being used, as, as you say... Um, by by filmmakers and yeah, they get some incredible shots I've seen some drone videos where there's like people are riding bikes up mountains and it's just wow that's amazing because if you can't hire a helicopter it's the yeah. cheap way of getting incredible HD footage uh, the porn industry's got on top of it as well you wouldn't be surprised literally to on know. top My literally difference. on top of it yeah I think they're shooting they're shooting their films with uh, with drones yeah I wouldn't know obviously what <laughs> Do you, really <laughs> what what are they doing they're shooting them with drones are they yeah what in the sky yeah, where else? Well, I don't know. I just thought, <laughs> I don't know. I just assumed porn films were shot in like bedrooms and stuff. Not in the like, desert. Oh, I don't know. How oh, no, oh, little <laughs> I know. Oh, dear. <laughs> this <Phil>. is awkward. <laughs> Phil, we'll have to have a little chat afterwards. <laughs> let's not. There's a lot of things I have to teach you, son. <laughs> All right, so let's move on. <laughs> the new issue's out. There's lots of great stuff inside the issue. Of course there is. It's now available in newsagents and on the iPad. Go and buy it. Uh, if you will, because I like to beat. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, what else is happening in the world of Hollywood this week? Holy moly, what isn't happening, Chris? <laughs> I don't know, Phil, you tell me. <laughs> Damn, I was just stalling there. What well, Paul about? Thomas Anderson okay. today, fresh in, Paul Thomas Anderson is, is penning the next draft of the script that, of the Pinocchio movie. Is this yeah. true? Because um, your nose just grew a bit. <laughs> is, is actually no, it's not, really that big. Yeah, this is my actual <laughs> well, nose, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, my word. It's pretty insensitive, Chris. <laughs> I just had surgery. Well, yeah, the Carlo Collodi uh, novel from 1883, the children's classic about the wooden puppet, of course, who wants to be a boy, um, but is a big fat liar. And Geppetto, <laughs> his kind of mentor, Creator. a little bit like you and me and the whole kind of 
post post pod chat. He is going to he's going to well it's 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 Robert Downey Jr's project and it's been through a few script iterations to this point not to Downey Jr's satisfaction. So he's brought PTA on um, okay. his mucker mm-hmm. to have a look at it. Now that's just a really unusual um, sort of eclectic mm. collaboration it's in like prospect. I've got no idea. Wolverine. Yeah, you know I mean? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, weirder things have happened, but yeah. not many. So, I yeah, I'm not sure what we'd expect here, if this is going to be a sort of ag- agonizing psychodrama a la Magnolia, <laughs> or, um, you know, there will be no's. <laughs> no, no, let's not do that. There will be wood. Yeah. <laughs> Helen, what's happened to you? I mentioned porn once and you've just gone off on one. This As is... in the sense of it's a carpenter and a wooden puppet. God, okay. you've got Come such on, a Chris. Mind. It gets bigger think? every time he lies. <laughs> oh, Chris. You, there's, probably been a, there's probably been a pornocchio, hasn't there? I'm, there I'm probably sure has there been. has. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think this is I think this is kind of brilliant. That they're friends, aren't they, Downey Jr. and, and Anderson? Because I know that he talked to him about Inherent Vice. Now, yes. Downey Jr. said he was never actually up for the role because he immediately said he was too old for it. But, you know, there was at least... A, a little bit of a d- discussion happening there. Yeah. Um, so the idea of them working together, I think, is quite an intriguing one. And and also, you know, we talked to him for Inherent Vice recently, and, and he's a really funny guy, Paul Thomas Anderson. I think we, mm. we tend to associate him with these, you know, with with There Will Be Blood, with this huge, dark drama. But he's he's got a real sense of humour, and it'd be kind of interesting to see him in, in something relatively light. I mean, Pinocchio has a real dark streak to it, like a really disturbingly dark streak at times if you go back to the original stories. Uh, but at the same time, it's, you know, it is for kids and he could do a really good job. You have to consider the fact that Inherent Vice, The Master, There Will Be Blood, I mean, they're, they're, they're great films. I'd maybe quibble about Inherent Vice, but they're, you know, the great films. He's seen as a, he's seen as a, a, a master filmmaker, mm. but, and they're really, really, really brilliantly critically received, but they don't, bust the old blocks and every now and again in order to get one for you you have to do one for them and maybe this yeah. is his one for them and maybe he'll be able to, able to inject it with his one for me sensibility and making it one for everybody well, one for us all well there's no yeah. word that he's going to direct it so there has been there's been some, some, some there's a potential there's been some yeah like he might if he you know because why would he do this he's not usually a writer for hire so why mm. would he write it if he doesn't want to at some point uh, call action uh, mm, maybe would, so, maybe so. I don't know. Could be his Paddington. But yeah, otherwise you would stick us on the on the sort of weird pantheon of of projects that RDJ um, hasn't done. I mean, he's been attached to so much and not and not done it uh, over the last few years. Most yeah. notably, of course. I mean, he's been he was a, he was on Gravity for a while and, and didn't do that. And there's been there's been a few films that he's been attached to over the last few years. Um, and I thought this one had gone the way of the of the dodo as well. So mm. it's interesting to see it being revived. Uh, not such good news for the people behind Skull Island, the mm-hmm. Kong Skull Colon Skull Island project, as Michael Keaton and J.K. Simmons both uh, have departed it, which leaves Tom Hiddleston standing alone as as the man who's going to visit this monster-plagued um, outcrop at the moment. Yeah. This is obviously the film by Jason Voigt-Roberts, uh, a young, I guess you'd call him an indie director up to this point, um, and, but legendary are uh, guiding this, and they know their way around this sort of terrain. Um, so we expect them to fill those two vacancies pretty swiftly, mm. I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's always when, when the people move for, for scheduling reasons, you're never quite sure if you should put kind of rabbit ears around that or not. <laughs> I don't know in this case if there's other problems. Um, it's a shame, though, because Michael Keaton has obviously had a bit of a renaissance. And J.K. Simmons probably wants people to forget about Terminator Genesis. Oh, he's the bright spot in that. Sorry, we'll get to that a bit later. <laughs> so... 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, dinosaurs and monsters, everyone in Hollywood wants to get them in the movie. So if you've already got them in your movie, then you'd want to make it, I'd imagine, at this point. Yeah. Um, so I shouldn't imagine it'll take long to replace them. What do you think? I agree. With everything <laughs> I've just said. Yes, I agree with everything you've just said. Things happen. Scheduling snafus happen in Hollywood. So maybe not... We should, maybe shouldn't read too much into it at this point in time. Yeah, there's a, a, one quick story that might be worth a look, which is um, Andrew Nichol mm. um, of Gattaca fame, of course, is now writing an adaptation of Monopoly. Yes, the board game. Um, now, Ridley Scott, of course, was, was attached for a long time. Um, I think, basically, the rights have gone back to Hasbro... Um, he, he didn't he didn't quite get there. He was looking at a Jumanji-style take on the story somehow. Somebody f- sucked into the game and battling corruption inside it. Um, Hasbro now has the rights back. They've given them, it appears, to Lionsgate, and they're now working with Nickel to try and find a way to make that work. So apparently the idea is, and I quote, a boy from Baltic Avenue, which is on the original American version of the game, uses both chance and community in a quest to make his fortune, taking him on an adventure-filled journey. It's about making your own luck, what makes you truly rich, and avoiding jail time. So presumably he's going to go work for one of the big banks. Uh, it's a Monopoly film. It's hard to get excited about a Monopoly film personally as a big old lefty, but I mean, you know, sure. <laughs> big old lefty. I'm excited. Are you? I dominate, yes. Uh, if there was yeah, an olig- oligarchy film to follow it up, I'd be on top of that as well. What's your Monopoly strategy? Um, I like to buy one of the utilities mm-hmm. and just sit there until the game's <laughs> over. <laughs> That's my, I don't like this game very much. I think it's kind of awful. Do you remember about five, was it about five years ago there was this massive spate of Hasbro and board game adaptations went into the pipeline and virtually none of them have emerged from the other side. That's because yeah. Battleship did emerge. Battleship, yeah. Battleship was the first cab off the rank and that obviously... It sunk the plans. It sunk, yeah. it sunk <laughs> the plans because there was this, there was Candyland. Yeah, Candyland. Ouija obviously did happen, didn't it? I can't remember. Did it happen? I should know this. Hang on, hang on. Let me just ask the spirits. What did the <laughs> gods say? say? Yes, it had. Yeah, there was a film called Ouija. There's like, no, it never happened. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about this. This is awkward. <laughs> yeah, so I, yeah, I don't know. What, Hasbro are a driving force behind this, I think, aren't they? So they'll probably mm. want to get it made. And they're quite powerful these days. So. Yeah, could um, I've got one thing to say. I'm just, I'm just going to ask Helen what her strategy in Monopoly is. Uh, I avoid playing it. Sorry. No, do, do, does anyone play, play Monopoly here? I just, I mean... I find I'll tell you what your Monopoly should be. What, what, what should, should be. it be? I'll tell you what your strategy should be. Okay. All right. Obviously, you mm. want to get the two the two purples. I mean, obviously. Obviously, you want to get the two purples, but the chances of people landing on those are very, very slim. slim. Although, you do have the, the chance card that says, go to Mayfair. Now, if you get that, then your your quid's in. But your best chance of winning the Monopoly mm-hmm. is to get the yellows and the oranges. Yellows and the oranges. And the oranges. Build hotels as quickly as you can. Statistically speaking, more people land in those than any of the other spaces. There you go. Heard it here first, people. That's the strategy. Wow. Well, well, Helen plays as the Occupy movement, so she just turns up and <laughs> just organises sit-ins on your porch. Yeah, basically. <laughs> well, uh, I ju- it would be really derelict of me not to mention uh, the Jobs trailer, which broke the switch. <laughs> I'm not saying that for comic effect. This is not for comic effect. This is I, um, Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, this this is, is the Jobs Universe is something that's uh, preoccupied me, as, as regular listeners will know. And there's a new trailer, and I've got to say that Michael Fassbender really does look absolutely nothing like Steve Jobs, or really, for that matter, sound like him. But he has nailed the high waisted, the high waisted trousers, 
And um, I'm excited. I couldn't be more excited. It's, it's the high-waisted trousers that have you excited. Well, it is the one thing. You're kind of glad that Steve Jobs at least has this really recognisable kind of you know, manifestation because he doesn't look like him at all. And there's nothing you can really do about that. Um, short of using Andy Circus and performance capturing it. Um, and so the trousers, at least from a distance, in the sort of mid- medium shots, look, look, you immediately think, ah, oh, Steve Jobs. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I think, you know, Danny Boyle, obviously, we trust. And uh, he's got a certain, you know, and Aaron Sorkin, of course, with the dialogue. Mm. So, you know, mm. yeah. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I think it looks great. Okay, let me ask you a question quickly before we move on. Uh, can you think of one biopic where the person, the actors look absolutely nothing like? The, uh, the the person they're playing, and yet has absolutely nailed it. You could argue that, and even though they used prosthetics, Anthony Hopkins looks absolutely nothing like Richard Nixon. Yes, that's yeah, true. That's, that's a good true. one. That's a really good example. Because, yes, because you're in that, even though you're like, that's not Richard Nixon. Langella yeah. looks a nothing lot more like, like Nixon and did yes. a great job too. And looks nothing like Dracula. <laughs> and yet he played him in a biopic. Amazing, I know. Guy's versatile. Really versatile, wow. <laughs> but you're right, Anthony Hopkins did a great job and looked nothing like him whatsoever, so, yes. you know, it can be done. And Johnny Five looks nothing like Short Circuit, and yet there he was. Incredible. I don't know, there must be, there must be some other ones as well. I thought it was a biopic, Ellen. I think all films are biopics. That's, that's basically my main problem. Um, I'm going to throw one at the mix, and this is a biopic as well. Mm-hmm. And Helen, with the glorious 12th just around the corner, this is going to be very near and dear to our hearts. Um, Good God. Timothy Spall is in talks to play... The Reverend Doctor Ian Paisley. <laughs> I mean, or as, that... as we should say, uh, if we were back home, Ian Paisley. Ian um, Paisley. Ian Paisley. The Reverend Doctor Ian Paisley. In a film called The Journey, directed by Nick Ham. Um, uh, it's going to be a, uh, co-written by Colin Bateman, right? Which is, which is good because uh, Colin Bateman's excellent. If you don't, if you don't know Colin Bateman, he's a he's a Northern Irish author. He was the author of The Forcing Jack and other uh, fantastic books. He's a kind of like a Northern Irish Carl Hyacin. So. Check out his stuff if you haven't read it before. Um, and it's going to be about the sort of rapprochement, I guess, between Paisley and Martin McGuinness, uh, two people who, if you know your Northern Irish history, uh, would not normally find themselves on you know, opposite sides of the table. P- politically, <clears throat> they, they represent two different ends of the spectrum. One was uh, unionist. In case people don't know who Ian Paisley is and who Martin McGuinness is, uh, Ian Paisley was, of course, he, he passed away recently. Uh, so Ian Paisley was the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party and he was a very staunch unionist and he wanted to keep uh, Northern Irish, Ireland Britain, British. Martin McGuinness was a very staunch Republican and uh, he did not want to keep Northern Ireland British and he wanted to become part of United Ireland. Uh, he is a member of the Sinn Féin political party. He is. Okay, so they, they butt heads, but somehow they found a common ground. Inspired, I think, by Eamon Holmes, who always wanted to spill the better tomorrow. He did. He didn't want to spill the better tomorrow. I, f- I find it weird that we would be making a film about uh, those two weirdos rather than <laughs> rather than a film about, say, the people who actually achieved peace. Or well, the Good Friday Agreement. The Good stuff. Friday Agreement. Okay. You know, I mean, I know there's been a bit of TV coverage of that, yeah. but I feel like we're, we're sort of... I feel like, you know... Trimble and Hume, who actually essentially mm-hmm. worked out the Good mm-hmm. Friday Agreement and made that all kind of come together effectively, initially at least, despite the efforts of Paisley and McGuinness and the like. Yes. I feel like we maybe we should be celebrating them. Yes. But, you know, whatever, I but guess. I will say this. I have, uh, back when I was uh, a reporter back home, David Trimble was my MP, and he's a very nice man, a very good man, uh, in my opinion, uh, who did great deeds. 
Mm-hmm. Um, sorry for this becoming an honorary podcast, <laughs> by the way, but uh, there you go. Uh, it's just kind of tied into the subject. Uh, but I don't think he's an interesting subject for a film, whereas Ian Paisley is a combustible guy, Martin McGuinness is a combustible guy, and their arcs, if you will, their changes from being people who were on the, the extreme end of Northern Irish politics sure. to where they ended up, Mm. Uh, publicly at least is going to be very interesting I think there's a film in that as well did, I, so. did either of them meet Steve Jobs at any point <laughs> <laughs> huh? I listen I'm, I, I really enjoyed listening to that I didn't know enough about it so thanks feel like you sort of spoiled <laughs> that sounded really interesting <laughs> you know, I just feel like you sort of spoiled the movie for me now but you know there you go alright okay well I'm looking forward to it this should be interesting I don't think there are enough movies about um that side of Northern Ireland and it's, it's great to see so hopefully something coming out soon it's called The Journey it's going to be shooting soon if they can find someone to play Martin McGuinness and presumably the likes of Jerry Adams and Peter Robinson and people like that would be in the film as well right that's been it for the Northern Irish part of the podcast and now our accents become a little bit more English <laughs> and uh, uh, as we welcome this week's guest whose accent is incredibly English. Uh, She's one of the sparkling jewels of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, one of her favourite people to boot. Uh, She impressed so much as Peggy Carter in Captain America, the first Avenger, that she's since reprised the role on a number of occasions, most notably, of course, in her own TV show, Agent Carter, uh, which finally debuts on UK screens next week. She is, of course, a wonderful Hayley Atwell, who came into our pod booth a few months ago when Agent Carter hadn't been picked up in the UK and when a second season, um, which has since been approved and starts shooting soon, was actually looking a bit uncertain, which is why there's a little bit of conversation about will it be a second season and obviously can someone pick it up in the UK. Uh, she was absolutely fantastic. Uh, she was talking to Helen and myself. Enjoy this uh, interview. We're delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Agent Carter herself, Hayley Atwell. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I am not too bad, thank you very much. I believe you were at the Brits last night, is that correct? I was at the after party at the Brits last night because it's actually, it actually was a three-minute walk from where I'm currently living. And, uh, <laughs> and it, so we went to see some friends who were involved, like organisers, and, and my boyfriend partly grew up with Ed Sheeran, so he wanted to see him and blah, blah, blah. But the weirdest thing was, the whole night, and this was the highlight of my night, I ran into my dentist. <laughs> at the Brits. At the Brits. Glamorous. Like, what are you doing here? Is your dentist Ed Sheeran? Is your dentist Madonna? How did, did that work did out? Not that dissimilar to him, to be honest. <laughs> he, was, he was a bit of a mess last night, I have to say. Normally you see him in like, an authority, kind of now open wide, and you feel very like, <laughs> you know, it's a very intimate uh, composition that you find yourself in, and then yeah. suddenly he's just kind of on the dance floor going, making no sense. Um, which is quite weird to see him in that kind of environment. Wow. So did, did, he have context. A, did he have a selection of old magazines scattered around him on the dance floor? <laughs> he had pearly whites that glowed fluorescent. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine he did. So you you did you weren't at the show itself, so you didn't see Madonna's fall. I didn't. I saw it on uh, someone showed me at the party on a on a video clip, which was just just shocking. Mm. The the thing that I can I just stand on my high horse for a minute Absolutely. and say I didn't I, I thought the the bashing of Madonna was pretty cruel you know the comments about HRT and and falling back and you know, and her age and, and yes. all that stuff I was kind of a bit sexist actually okay and a bit nasty yeah and you know she's a fifty six year old woman who's extraordinarily fit for her age and she is a legend whatever 
if you if you like her or not. And um, I just thought they were a bit mean. I think I she's that. fit for any age, actually. Any, yeah, I, she's fitter than me, that's yeah. for sure. I've, I, you can look. I'm, I've actually taken my shoes off because I couldn't <laughs> manage it down the stairs in a pair of high heels. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> kudos to Madonna. You're ruining Peggy Carter's image. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I really am. Yeah, this is keeping it real. <laughs> she, she can do anything in heels. <laughs> She'd walk down the stairs in heels, and she'd kick through a wall and come in here. And um, uh, yes. it'll, all, it'll all be good. Yeah. Um, you, of course, have, have played Peggy now quite a lot. Uh, half a decade. Half a decade, yeah. <laughs> uh, I actually interviewed you on set of uh, The First Avenger way back in 2010. In the day. Um, yeah. Usually, when people sign on for Marvel movies, they sign on, they send their lives away, they sign mm. six, ten picture deals, whatever. Mm. Had you at that point, and uh, did you know that no. Did you have an inkling this might be still going on this Not time? Not at all. There was it, it felt like the contract felt like a one off. I think that they thought Peggy Carter was the, you know, the love interest and the sidekick for Captain America, but set in the nineteen forties and he wakes up in the modern day, she's never coming back. Or mm. she's gonna be old and they're never gonna get together. So it was very much a kind of project in and of itself. And so when it finished, I went on to another thing, didn't think anything of it. And it wasn't until I got the call for the um, Captain America two. Wasn't it wasn't actually till I got on Twitter that I discovered, so, someone was impersonating me on Twitter and being really boring. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to go on Twitter and attempt to be a bit less boring. Um, and then I noticed that so many fans, there were so many Peggy Carter fans out there. And uh, it was lovely that when we did the one shot, which was the um, tiny 12-minute short for the Blu-ray DVD of, of Iron Man 3, mm. um, that Luis D'Esposito, the co-president of Marvel, kind of took me aside and just said, you know, Peggy's kind of quite loved out there in the Marvel world. How would you feel about doing a series? And I was like, yes, immediately. <laughs> yes. And uh, so here we are. Yeah. Wow, amazing. Awesome. I remember the the reaction to that one shot screening in, at Comic-Con was just, was crazy. People yeah. were just going nuts for it. They're, they're Rightly. loyal, very yeah. loyal. And then a year later, I had about 20 people dressed as Peggy Carter who were at the Comic-Con. <laughs> they, they take it seriously. They, they know more about me than I know about me. <laughs> <laughs> so in the, uh, in the Peggy timeline, it was the one shot, the Agent Carter one shot, and then... That amazing cameo in yeah, The Captain Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. I'm still tearing Aww, up sniffles. just thinking about it. Um, yeah. Which was fascinating the way that you guys did that. Because mm. uh, so many people afterwards were going, was it Was it makeup? Was it Yeah. Was it a different actress? What, what? Was it a little old lady? Yeah. Well, it was. Th- I think it was three things that they did for that. And they m- kind of merged them together. One was me, as me now, performing. One was me with dots on my face for to CGI something onto my face. Mm-hmm. And the third one was a makeup test where I had prosthetics. So we went through all these different... And I, I did a prosthetics, a scene in the prosthetics. And then the, oh, then the fourth one was actually had they had an, a much older lady come in and mimic everything that I did. And she was incredible because she watched me like a hawk. Yeah. And every raise of the eyebrow, turn of the head, sniffle... She did it, and I would say the lines, and she would mime them. She was she she was amazing at what she did. She was kind of she looked a bit like Jessica Tandy, with this beautiful <laughs> kind of mane of white hair, and this extraordinary face. And so I think they blended a mixture of all those things. But yeah. it's essentially my eyes and my voice, and my performance and the choices that we made with the director. But uh, they did it very cleverly because people people couldn't really tell. Yeah. It's quite seamless. Yeah, it's such, it's such an extraordinary opportunity. You know, you've played this character now. In nineteen in World War Two, post World War Two, aged ninety six, ninety six, and you've got further appearances um, in, in different time uh, periods. Apparently, I'm sure, apparently, um, apparently according to uh, an Avengers poster and the IMDb <coughs> and whatnot. Um, 
this is an extraordinary. But can I just say one thing that yeah. I also discovered was that the OK Online magazine also thought that I was in a car crash with my boyfriend Stephen Merchant yesterday when I was actually <laughs> eating my cereal in my pajamas with my real boyfriend in London. So don't believe everything that you read on the okay. internet. <laughs> All right, okay. But there is definitively uh, an Avengers poster that came out this week for Age of Ultron, and your name is on there. Yeah, your yeah. name is on there. So well, that um, is out the bag. Well, I will tell you about that. Is that that came from? a night out in Black's nightclub in the West End with Joss Whedon, who's a mate of mine, and we went and got a bit drunk. And <laughs> he just went, you know, I think I'm going to invite you in a scene. Obviously, he was in with an American accent. <laughs> um, and uh, and I just went, oh, brilliant. And we bonded over the fact that um, we like we were fans of Fern Gully. He's a massive fan of random films. Um, and it was based on that that I think he just went, you know, you're one of mine. You're kind of my kind of people. You, you're going to be in my next movie. So then he wrote me in a kind of cameo for The Age of Ultron. So it was nice to come come and work with him. And But he's quite brutal. He was When he was directing me, I did it. And he went, God, not like that. What are you doing? <laughs> and I just was like, oh, wow, okay. Um, I was giving my all is what I was doing, Joss. But no, I will do something else now. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, yes, he's, uh, he's very honest. But this, I mean, this is good because you've, you know... Uh, you were talking about timelines, but also just mm. across the Marvel universe. Yeah. You're becoming, you know, really embedded in the connective tissue because you turned up in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, your name has been linked with Ant- Ant-Man, uh, Avengers, mm. Captain America, Agent yeah. Carter. Agent, and Agent Carter herself. I know she's slowly taking over like yes. a spider weaving her web. But if she's the original sort of Nick Fury, then that makes total sense. Yeah, it, absolutely. And I think it's very much they're responding to what the fans want. Mm. And I think what they've done brilliantly with the series is create a very strong female character who has vulnerability, who has humour. Um, and also, on another kind of feminist note, she really likes women. Mm-hmm. She's not threatened by women and she's not threatening and she's not intimidating. And I think that's kind of quite rare sometimes to see like the strong female lead who's not a bitch to other people and mm. she's not a bitch to other women. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's quite lovely. You know, she's, she develops strong relationships with other girls and, and, and other guys. And there's a whole Twitter campaign for her to be bisexual, which is quite fun. <laughs> really is it? I get all these... What's the hashtag? I get, I get, it's, yeah, it's like, Peggy loves Angie. Hashtag Peggy loves Angie. And then, uh, and then, and then people, I've had so many tweets going, do you do realise Captain America is bisexual, do you? And I was like, really? Oh, that's fantastic. There is so much out there about him and Bucky. I mean, oh it's, really? It's not just it's not just him and Bucky. It's it's him and Falcon. There there's a strong well that's homoerotic, yeah. Bit of bit. bit kind of woman in love. Yeah. Alan Bates and Oliver Reed on a carpet in front of a fireplace type thing. <laughs> now, there's an image there's that'll an be image. fan art within about five minutes after people listen to this. <laughs> I guess uh, I, have an inter- I have an interesting story about that, but that'll be I'll, I'll wait for uh, until we're we're off. Thank mm. God for that. Yeah. Um, uh, no, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you're saying Peggy isn't a bitch, which I agree with, but she is also doesn't concern herself terribly with being likable, mm. um, I think, which is really interesting as well in, in mm. terms of... I mean, there are, there are times in the show, and I'm not going to get into spoilers, but there are times in the show where she does quite unlikable things. Yeah. And for the best of reasons. Yeah. But, you know, it does put her in genuine moral quandaries, which I think we don't necessarily expect from... Yeah. I think on the page you might have thought this was a bit more of a of a you know, giggly, let's go solve crimes kind yeah. of a problem of the week kind of show. And it, it really isn't that. I think that's that's true. And that's what makes her a little bit more relatable because she's flawed and she makes yeah. mistakes. She comes from the right place, but she's also 
she's also makes some terrible decisions and she has to kind of live the consequences of that. But that's, you know, the, what you guys might not know is that I wasn't privy to the scripts before, like a, until a day before we started shooting each episode. Oh, okay. So I got, I was, if I wanted to, the showrunners would, would have given me a, an arc of the journey and tell me where she's going to go and what's going to happen, the major plot lines. But I didn't want to know because I couldn't read the script. So I just wanted the ex experience when I read them in front of me. So... I was I was getting to know Peggy as I was playing her, so a lot of it was based on kind of quite an organic process of improvising and winging it, really, um, <laughs> faking it. <laughs> but I came to like the the fact that they they'd taken some of my ideas on board quite early on of making her accessible, mm. and I think what makes her accessible is her faults and is her complexities and her hypocrisies and her contradic contradictions, and that that's also where some of the comedy can lie. Um, and also we can see her not taking herself too seriously, but taking the work seriously. Yeah. And I think it allows the whole the whole show to be entertaining and t it's quite tongue-in-cheek yeah. rather than being too melodramatic or earnest, mm. which we certainly I certainly didn't want. I wanted to kind of keep well away from. Yeah. You also have uh, an opportunity within the show because Peggy dons, especially in the early episodes, various disguises and different accents. And again, mm -hmm. that must be so much fun for you to play. Oh, play it's, with. it's great. I mean, because you have... Peggy's costume, which is, you know, the slash of red lipstick and the crazy red nails and the immaculate hair and the red hat and the blue coat, which makes her look like Paddington Bear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you ha so you have, you know, the Peggy look. But then within that, she's got all these fun disguises. And, and then on top of that, she, she bursts into these very dirty action sequences. Um, so someone who's quite uptight and rigid and British and very proper and witty and dry suddenly comes out with these kind of knocking, you know, I mean, kicking people in the balls, basically. She's just really dirty. <laughs> yes. Slap, you know, whacking someone across the head with a stapler, um, which is was great fun. I, many stuntmen were damaged in the making of this movie, unfortunately. <laughs> Um, so is, yeah. this, is that something that comes uh, second nature to, to you now? If Helen, for, for example, were to attack you, how would you fend her off? What would you do? Oh, that's a very good question. I'd be like this. I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. my hands in the it, would, it wouldn't be difficult. <laughs> it wouldn't be great. <laughs> I think we just kind of, yeah, we'd have a bit of a, I don't, oh God, a rough and tumble. Mm. But then, of course, everyone would love to see that because it's two women. You know, <laughs> Again, there'd be fan so art on the internet within about, within about five minutes of that happening. Um, has, you, has your approach to playing Peggy changed? Since the first Captain America movie, how how, how has it changed at all? I mean, have you, the do you, part. you yeah? Do you approach the character in a different way? Or yeah, I think um, one of the benefits of having an, a year and a half of waiting to find out if it was going to get made, well, um, you know, ABC made the decision and found the right slot, and blah blah blah, and Marvel were writing it and put all the creative stuff aside mm -hmm. and together. Um, I had a, I had a bit of time to figure out what I felt leads a show and what I felt was exciting to show as a female kind of character and a lot of that as I've said before comes with certain vulnerabilities and flaws that immediately, immediately become possibly endearing as well as uh, not her basically her not being too goody-goody um, or not too uh, irritating and sickly in her kind of her pursuit of the good and uh, which doesn't feel very British <laughs> um, so I wanted her to have some kind of element of self-deprecating British humour about her and also kind of her very dry wit And but I also wanted to see the psychological cost of losing Steve that's only yes. been it's only been a year and he was the love of her life although 
beautifully in the Marvel first film, it, in Captain America, the first Avenger, it's so innocent, they barely have a kiss, which I yeah. think is really sweet. And she loved skinny Steve. She loved the Steve before his great transformation. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's kind of, that's carried throughout this, the first, especially the first few episodes of the season where she's still grieving him. And you discover what she's, what she's ultimately lost is the person that she can confide in and the person she feels safe with and the person who knows her worth. And the only person that comes close to that is Howard Stark. And mm. he's kind of off gallivanting and womanizing <laughs> around around the world and she can hardly get a hold of him. Yeah. You do um, have this new relationship, though, with, uh, yeah. with Jarvis. Indeed, my dear friend James Darcy, yeah. who I've known for about eight years. Right. So we've been, we're terribly silly and childish together on set um we, we we i feel like i'm about five years old when we're together but he has this i know he's he's playing a baddie or he's playing someone really evil and broadchurch at the moment <laughs> and doing a great job and he, he I remember and he's so he's so british he goes god i've been playing psychopaths all my career who knew comedy could be so fun and uh he <laughs> and he has this you didn't even realize he has this natural comic timing but he, he's great yeah. and he, there's there's a there's a great blooper reel which is mostly james falling over or doing something inappropriate that just <laughs> goes a little bit too far and they've had to cut but they still wanted to put it on the blooper reel because it was a great great fun um and i think what they they did was the the showrunners in particular and the the other writers was they created um, they created that dialogue initially and said, look, we want them to be banter and good chemistry between them and like a, a nice, healthy sense of competition and kind of a love-hate relationship. Mm. And as James and I kind of got on and our relationship and friendship on offset was very much like that, uh, the writers paid attention to that and encouraged us to improvise. Oh, great. So James was able to add line a lot of quite a few lines and... Um, we, we kept it within the tone and the world of the characters that the writers had written, but we were able to play a little bit with it, which which kept it fun. I was going to say, I love how British uh, the relationship between... Uh, how British a show becomes when Jarvis and Peggy are together. Uh, and just how British Peggy is in general. At yeah. one point, I think it's in the first episode, you literally say the words, Crikey O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, was that, uh, was that uh, an Atwell ad-lib? We, uh, we suggested a lot of them. It's like, mm -hmm. bloody hell, uh, uh uh, flaming Nora, I think something like Blooming Nora, or something. And then, and then I think a writer just went, "What, what about Craig O'Reilly? I think that sounds fabulous." And it was, it was, uh, it was finally used in the set. But we came up with a lot of different ones. There was another thing that um, Dominic takes the credit for. So now that I'm speaking and I have all the control, I'm telling you, <laughs> I'm taking credit for it because he's not here. Which is when um, Howard turns up. I think it's in the first episode, and this isn't a spoiler at all. And he. Um, opens up the door and he was meant to open up the door and the car door and I meant to just look at him and he looks at me and then we go to a next scene and uh, the director just went ah, I kind of feel like the scene dies we need something else so um, he was just like oh um, I, okay uh, and he I think he was jet lagged because he just flown in and probably hung over because that's Dominic um, <laughs> uh, but he, he couldn't come up with anything so I just went I just went what just about Something like, hey, do you miss me? Yeah. And which felt like very Howard Stark. So it's become a bit of a tagline for Howard. So then they they wrote it in again later. So when it's an echo of that later on where he comes back and he says, hey, do you miss me? It's a kind of an ongoing characteristic. So I was very proud of that. Yeah. It <laughs> is very him. Right. It's very him, yeah. <laughs> is there a feeling, I don't know if this is, if there's been a decision on this or not, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character, is he by this point dead or just out of the picture? Does it matter? Oh, God. Didn't Meryl Streep call him Fifty Shades of Grump? 
I I loved working with him. I thought he was hilarious. I don't think it was necessarily always intending to be funny, but I found him very funny um, and and endearing and and so smart. Back uh, in our interview at the time, I, I spoke to you on the set of the first Avenger. Don't worry, I don't have perfect recall. I found the transcript today and I looked. At, <laughs> I reread it. Um, you told me something very interesting. You said you were so nervous about your big audition for Peggy that you threw up on the way. Is that, is that? Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, God, I yeah. Oh my you, God, I completely forgotten that. Forgotten that. <laughs> I threw up. I threw up. The God, that must have been a very vomity time for me because I threw up the day of the audition, and I also threw up on my first day of training for it. <laughs> from the the trainer was Daniel Craig's trainer from Bond, so you can imagine what he put me through on my first day. Yeah, I just turned green, threw up, and had to be sent home. And I got back into bed, and they couldn't move for three days. It was really embarrassing. <laughs> I was like, God, I'm not even a superhero. I heard that everybody on 300 threw up at some point. So. Oh, good. Yeah, okay, right. I think it's like a rites of passage. I think so. yeah. If you don't throw up, you're not working hard enough. Um, <laughs> but I did. I was ter- yeah, absolutely terrified. Well, they they put me through the screen test, which was a full day where I had to learn eight eight pages of dialogue, loading and unloading of various guns, and plus three fight sequences. And that was all part of the audition. And it was also a screen test. They had my hair and makeup done. They had a costume done. And this, there was, so there was a lot of work that was put into just the audition. And I think I was up against one other person. So, And I didn't know who that person was. And I didn't know if she'd auditioned before or was going to go after me. And I, I didn't want to know. And I felt sick to my stomach about the whole process. But you knew you were, it was the final two. You knew you'd made it that yeah, far. Yeah, I knew I'd made it that far, yeah. It was, yeah. Uh, you know, it was just you give it your all, but you, you have no idea what it is that they're really looking for. You're just mm. hoping you're winging it and faking it and doing everything you can to kind of go, hire me, I'll be really nice to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> what were the uh, eight pages of dialogue? Can you remember? Uh, it was the final scene, one of them being the final scene where she's in the um, station the station with the microphone and she's trying to she's trying to get arrange a dance with Cap and he's telling her, I'm going to have to go and I'm going to yeah. you know, sink this ship or fly this plane into an iceberg. That's a, that's, so, a, that's a good place to start. I mean, that's yeah, tough. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was tough. And I remember uh, after I did that, the first AD, Richard Whelan, who's a great guy, and uh, he, he just went, well, you made me cry, love. And just, <laughs> I just and I thought, wow, that's, I mean, if I've made some of the crew members who are, you know, the, the, the more professional experience of crew members, the less it, less it takes to make them cry, the bitter old farts. <laughs> and they're like, so, you know, so if you do that, you know you've accomplished something. And I, that's kind of what I set out to do. Like, if, I, if I'm trying to test a, com- a funny line or if I'm trying to try and test, like, making someone cry, mm. I'll just try and find the hardest person on set. And if I can make them pay attention to me and make them cry when I'm filming, then I know I've done a good job. Because they're, mo- they're the most disillusioned because I've seen it all and they see how it works. <laughs> Amazing. So actually, yeah. shooting that scene when you came to shoot it, mm. um, what was that experience like? And, and did Chris, for example, was he on the other end of the line, feeding you the lines, or was it a very yeah. much a disembodied experience? He'd already shot his side of it okay. a few days beforehand, and I was, I was sat behind, kind of behind the set in another room on a line so he could hear my lines. I was really nervous about it because I felt like it was her big moment to be vulnerable and it was the big, sad, weepy, romantic bit. And I couldn't quite get it and I didn't quite know why. And um, Joe Johnson, brilliant director that he was, he just, he, instead of going, okay, yep, that's great, or instead of feeling, you, you get a sense that he didn't want to let it go because he'd seen that I was capable of a lot more than I was than I was giving and I, and, and I had some kind of emotional block as to what I was doing. I just felt like mm. I was a failure and I was never going to get the scene right. So he took me out into um, an editing suite 
and we broke the set broke for for an early lunch and he took me to this suite and he showed me on a big screen my audition and he showed me what I did and he went do that and he went <laughs> and I just went oh my god okay right and I remember going god my hair was God, my hair was bad in that. And then <laughs> I was like, wow, I'm really surprised I got that wrong. Bloody awful. And it's so you, you're nitpicking, but you, he's also, you, you also get a very clear idea of what it is that you want, yeah. he wants and what you're not giving to him. So I was able to go in and basically mimic what I had done in the audition afterwards. And, and Chris was kind of sat there, kind of staring at his watch, going, come on, come on, go, go to the pub soon. Um, and he was delivering me all my lines, yeah. You worked with uh, Woody Allen, for mm-hmm. example, on Cassandra's Dream. Um, what was that experience like? Because I've heard people don't often get to meet the Woodster until the Woods. yeah. yeah, until they actually arrive on set. Yeah, um, I had a couple of um, things in that audition which is quite different to what other people have experienced. One of them being that I had a, had a general audition with a casting director in London, and he, she said, "Right, I'm just going to I'm just going to ask you to read a line of dialogue." And I think it was something like, "Hey, my car's broken down. Can you help?" Mm-hmm. I think it was something like that. And I had to say it in front of the camera, and then I have to do like a head-to-toe shot of me looking at the camera, then me at the side, and the back of me. And I, I walked out, bought a packet of cigarettes, and just went, I hate my career, I hate my life, this is soul-destroying. <laughs> because they didn't really ask me to do anything, but, that's, yeah. but there was such an element of mystery around it. And so I just had to let it go. And then about three days later, completely randomly, it felt like, um, my agent called me up and they said, oh, Woody wants to meet you, he's flying you over on the weekend. So what was different is that I got a chance to meet him and mm. I was flown over to New York and put up in a hotel near, quite near his office and then I was invited to go to his office and wait in his um, private kind of viewing screening room and um, I, waited, I waited for about 20 minutes and I was so paranoid and scared and nervous about the whole experience that I was coming up with ideas like, oh my God, he's got a camera and he's videoing me on my own right now because he wants to see how I like interact with a couch or a wall or a... Okay, so, um, okay, how do I look relaxed? And I just was, I was so nervous meeting him. And then he came in and he just went, hello, um, I'm Woody and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to get really shy when I meet new people. And he was so utterly disarming and lovely yeah and he was kind of fascinated with the way that I spoke he liked my voice and so he just said can you tell me a bit about your life and it wasn't so much the content of what I was saying but the way I was saying it that he he was listening to and then he very sweetly just said well um here's the script which is the second thing that is very rare and that he doesn't do for a lot of yeah. actors yeah and said will you go back to your hotel and read it and if you like it and you might not um I'd like to offer it to you it was very, it was just kind of quite remarkable, really. And uh, and I was just like, well, script or not, I'm, there's no way I'm turning down an opportunity to work with that Woody Allen. Yeah, even if there um, had been like 90 pages of just crayon drawings, surely yeah. you would have just, <laughs> yes, I will, yes, of course, Woody of Allen. Of course, ab- yes, completely, 100%. It wasn't 90 pages of crayon drawings, just to double check. It uh, was an actual script with wasn't dialogue. wasn't too dissimilar. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Hayley Atwell, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank I don't you know why so I said much. your full name like that, but <laughs> Hayley Atwell, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you so much you. for coming Thank in. Thank you very much. Anytime. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye. Yeah, she was great. Fantastic. And Agent Carter's a lot of fun. Uh, and it starts next week on Fox UK, the Fox UK channel. Um, I'm not sure what it is on Skype, but you know, you'll find it. You're resourceful or Virgin Media, whatever it is that you have. It uh, starts on July 12th. Okay, time for this week's movie reviews. Uh, Let's start with Terminator Genesis, in which Big Arnie reboots the franchise that made him famous. Well, he did say, I'll be back. (laughs) Repeatedly. So, no surprise to see him in this one. And this is, uh, how would you describe this one, Helen? Uh, Is it a requel, a seaboot? What is it? 
I mean, a, a, a re, remakey boot? A remakey boot. A remixy boot? A remixy boot. Mm. I don't know. It's okay. it's upsetting, whatever it is. Uh, so this is uh, the story of Kyle Reese, played by Jai Courtney, who's sent back to 1984 to save Sarah Connor, played by Amelia Clark, who will grow up to be the mother of John Connor, played by Jason Clark. No relation. Um but when he gets there, instead of finding the terrified uh, Linda Hamilton of yesteryear, he finds uh, a Sarah Connor who is already prepared because she has been raised for the last 11 years by a Terminator, by a T-800, Arnold Schwarzenegger model Terminator, who has taught her all about Judgment Day. She already knows it's coming. She's already preparing. She's already kick-ass. And she's the one who's saving Kyle Reese from a T-1000 that's also now been sent back and is chasing him through the same store he was chased through last time but this time it's different so basically it's it's a it's i mean at some at some points there are direct lifts like direct lifts of shots from james cameron's original terminator there are loads of references and and uh and nods to terminator 2 judgment day as well it isn't nearly as good as either of them so what happens in this one is that they uh, they have actually built uh, a time machine. Sarah Connor and Pops Terminator have built a time machine to try and help them in their quest to stop Judgment Day. Kyle Reese tells them that no, he thinks Judgment Day has changed now. Mm-hmm. Since he since he was when he was jumping, he had these visions, and he thinks instead of it being 1997, it's mm-hmm. going to be 2017. Mm-hmm. So instead of giving themselves 33 years to figure out what that means, they they decide to jump straight to 2017 and stop Judgment Day there for reasons. Because of reasons, you see. So they they jump there and then they find a terrifying new threat that I think is a spoiler, so we'll talk about that in a spoiler section later. Yes, uh, because uh, we're not doing a spoiler special podcast about Terminator Genesis for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, But we are going to talk about it. We're going to have a mini spoiler section because we have a lot to say about the things that happen in this movie. Um, And we're going to discuss those in about 10, 15 minutes. And that's going to be the end of the podcast. So in case you you don't want to listen to that or in case you haven't seen the film, you can skip it. So that'll be at the end of the podcast. Clearly signposted. Phil Cat, what do you what do you what do you make of this? Well, I want to stress before I say anything that we do tend to come on this podcast really looking to praise and laud movies because we love them. Um, mm. And it doesn't give you any pleasure to give a film a kicking. That said, <laughs> okay, let's starting from the beginning. It, it, it opens with a kind of a beat for beat recreation of the early sequences of the first two Terminator films. So all well and good. You know, not as good as that. It's lost a bit in the, down the years. But it starts with this kind of future battle, um, man against machine, and, and, and that's familiar terrain. From then on, it just it's just a kind of aggregation of things that don't work, don't make any sense, aren't any fun to watch, feel like... It feels like sort of... It, it feels like Ross Abbott trying to do Bill Hicks, you know? It's like somebody doing an imp- a really bad impression of something great and everything's just jarring and out of kilter and not funny. And mm. if you've seen the trailer, quite a lot of it's in there. Mm. It felt to us from the very beginning that watching watching the studio trying to promote this film, that they didn't have a lot of faith in it. Um, the fact that we saw... Uh, a chunk of Mission Impossible, um, the new Mission Impossible movie, which does look like a lot of fun, uh, previewing before this, and you'll see that on IMAX. Again, felt like they just need to get people through the door if they can to see it. But they were giving a lot of stuff away. The spoiler you referred to is in the trailer. Yeah, um, that's That's, for me, a sign of a lack of confidence in the film. And I, I think rightly so. The, the problem that, that I have with this movie is that 
it's a little bit like the Spider-Man situation. It feels like they need to make the film for, for, for legal, for, for, for contractual reasons. And therefore, instead of starting with a good idea, they start with a requirement to make something. And that is not a great place no. from which great art comes. It's not like, you know, okay, the Sistine Chapel needs painting, but you have a great painter to do it, right? In yeah. this instance, the script, and I don't like to call people out, but it's really, really bad. It's just a bad script. It's full of... And, and you see specifically Arnie, who, who does as, as good a job as, as he can with it. His character started off as this kind of taciturn, you know, virtually monosyllabic. He says, how many, how many lines of dialogue in the first film? Is it 16? 17? Yeah. Yeah. In this one, he has all the exposition. He has endless exposition. And then because the film has no faith in what it's doing, Jai Courtney's there to go, don't say that again, that's silly. But he has exposition that he has no way of knowing what he's talking well, about. There's, yeah, mm. but the thing is, I don't even really get into the plot holes thing because it just doesn't matter because yeah. it's not good enough to warrant spending time thinking about it I for think me. A lot of screenwriters, uh, I think put up their film's plots on boards and post-it notes and they have timelines and they, you know... For example, when Simon Kimberg can be told this when he was writing Days of Future Past, it nearly yeah. drove him insane trying mm. to make sure that the timelines yeah. were working right and every character had an arc. This feels to me that, they, that the screenwriters did not do that at any point during the film because none of it makes sense. And you have scenes that actually contradict each other within the scene. So there's a very early scene where... Um, because uh, the film actually begins in 2029, just as Skynet is about to fall with Jason uh, Clark and Jai Courtney about to take it all and you know then send Jai Courtney back because that's what happens, obviously. And they have a scene where basically Jai Courtney volunteers to go back and save Sarah Connor from the from the Terminator because he knows her so well. Yeah. He knows everything about her. And then Jason Clark proceeds to tell him things about her that we need to know as the audience, but you mm. presume that character would already know, but that character doesn't know because it, it, it's just a really badly written character and a badly written screenplay. And that happens all the way through the movie the, where something that happens in the early part of a scene will be immediately contradicted by something that happens in the latter mm. part of the scene. I thought it was astonishingly cack-handed. I think his, term, his real name should be Terminator Karaoke because essentially what you have is mm. a uh, sequence uh, all the way through the film characters saying lines that other characters said in other in, films in the other films yeah. but better yeah. mm. and it constantly it's a bit like the Bourne Legacy it constantly reminds you that there's a better movie going on outside the fringes of this yeah. movie it also um, has the worst kiss offline I think in history <laughs> like I mean Team America would, would be embarrassed yeah. for the person who says this one I I, I, no one comes out of this film well. I'm really sorry. I mean, they're all, everyone in it's talented. Everyone's involved, I'm sure, is talented, but just nobody comes out of it well. Um, Jai Courtney, wooden, kind of horrible. Um, there's a lot of th- well, there's a lot of wrong with his this, this take on that character. Yeah. Well, it's a bad script. I just think you look at the script and you're like, I, how am I going to make that good? And these lines of dialogue, I have to say, and 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 the fact that it tries to sort of nod and wink to itself, but when you don't do them, this is the thing we talk about with caper movies. Mm. When you don't get it right, it's horrible. Yeah. So it's a tight wire act, mm. and if you're going to do, there's moments of really broad comedy where it's this almost feels like a rom com. There's a bit where they have a they go and they have an identity parade, and, and Arnie's recurring kind of joke about that he can't really mimic the human smile, mm. which you see in the trailer. That keeps popping up, but it's like it's like it's the whole film has failed the Turing test of comedy. It, it does it, it it it's read about comedy, but it doesn't really know what it is. It knows now why we smile, but it is something. Like <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of I'm usually hesitant to blame the script because scriptwriters don't have ultimate say. Um, and, and there are some clunkers in this one, but I wonder how much of it is down to the screenwriter's own choice and how much of it is down to the inherent difficulties of of 
sequelizing the Terminator. Now, the first Terminator is in, within itself a really elegant movie. It's beautifully put together. It's one of those to, perfect movies. To an extent, it avoids all the the, par- the paradoxes of time travel, and or at least it ne- it wraps them up neatly in a bow. Actually, much as I enjoy Terminator 2, a lot starts to go wrong there. Because logically speaking, the end of Terminator 2 seems to have hope. It seems to be a happy ending, which means Judgment Day never happens, which means Kyle Reese never goes back in time, which means John Connor isn't born, which means Terminator 2 doesn't happen, which means there's an unhappy ending, so Kyle Reese does go back in time, so it does happen. It's a complete logic bomb. And everything since then has kind of been a logic bomb, but... You can get away with you if you kind of embrace that. And I was just watching the Sarah Connor Chronicles this week and they do kind of embrace it. They they literally have a character who's one of the freedom fighters who's come back from the future to help protect John Connor and help protect the resistance. And every other person he meets who comes back from the future, he asks them, what date is your judgment day? Because the date of judgment day keeps changing according to essentially who's winning the war in the past. Mm. That's a really interesting idea. Maybe you can't get into it in a film. Maybe it's too short a time. But if you started to grapple with some of the craziness of the logic of Terminator, I honestly think you'd end up with a better film. And what they've done here is completely wavered aside and tried to make just an action movie. Yeah. And and therefore it all falls apart. I, I, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it uh, in more detail in a, in a second. Uh, the, the screenwriters, by the way, are Patrick Lussier, who is the writer and director of Drive Angry and uh, and also the, the writer of, amazingly, uh, Dracula 3, Dracula 2001, he wrote the story, uh, Dracula 2 Ascension and Dracula 3 Legacy, so we're in safe hands. And Shadow and, Island, no? Uh, no, that was later, uh, the other writer, later Caligridis, yeah. who's a James Cameron yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, working partner, co-wrote the, the story of Avatar, produced Avatar. And wrote Shutter Island, Alexander, and Nightwatch. Um, I think part of the problem is there is really nowhere else. Once the second movie had been made, there really that was definitive. There really wasn't very many other places for this to go in a, in a expand. But that's this. never going to stop. No, I know, but that's money to be made. Yeah, supposedly, and there may be two more of these films. Um, yeah. we'll, we'll get we'll get into it later mm-hmm. on. But I, I'll say the first Terminator and the first two Terminators are fantastic, fantastic films, classics of, of their kind. And there, are, there's the stakes are high in those movies, and there's mm. a sense of grit and danger and desperation, and the Terminator is genuinely menacing. Mm. Um, one thing oh. they might have done for this movie, instead of trying to do the high concept thing of, oh, every, the timelines have changed and everything's different, it's maybe they should just gone back to having Arnold being the bad guy. But oh. that might have been interesting. We often talk about those cinema experiences you really remember. I remember going to see T two. I was in Virginia, where my mom's family was from. I was on a date with a girl called Sue Ellen. <laughs> Sue Ellen, if you're listening, I've still got your money. Um, and <laughs> it was, I know, it was a terrible day. It, it was just a mind-blowing, the awesome mm. experience. The anticipation, the movie, the whole thing, was phenomenal. Um, and so I guess we're harsh on this, partly because it lives in that shadow. But it's that it's their choice to be in their shadow. And, uh, you know, I think they've done a pretty miserable job. We gave it two stars. I would be personally quite close to a one on this one. I'd, I'd, pr- I'd probably go too. I, I, I was kind of... I went in with very low expectations and was giving it the benefit of the doubt or trying to for a large part of the running time. And, and you know, so the first little bit, I was like, okay, I can, I can kind of see this. The future set stuff, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in seeing how they actually fight the machines. I haven't seen that really before in the future. That's interesting. This is okay. This is okay. Jai Courtney goes back in time. This is not good. <sighs> so, you know... It, there were some interesting ideas, but yeah, definitely no more than two stars for me. Yeah, uh, yeah, we gave this one two stars. So yeah, 
I say to avoid, but you, you probably will, out of a certain curiosity, go and see it. Um, oh, uh, one thing I would say, the de-aging of Arnie, because uh-huh. we see the young Terminator come back, as we did in the first film, yeah. I think those effects are stunning. They are good, you're right. They're really, really impressive. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I can unreservedly say I like. Yes, that is that's very good. And we like J.K. Simmons as well. We'll yeah. talk, but we'll talk about that later on. We're going to have a little mini spoiler special um, where we're going to talk about it in, in, in some kind of depth, um, getting into spoiler stuff in just a few minutes. Uh, but first up, yeah, two stars for Terminator Genesis. I, I agree with that. Moving on to the next film that's out this week, which is Magic Mike. XXL or double XL or, you know, it's whatever you want to say, it, uh, <laughs> in which Janine Tatum comes back and he does his... His gyrating thang. <laughs> uh, Helen, you must have hated every second of this. Oh, it was tough. It was really tough. This is uh, Channing Tatum's Mike Lane has been out of the stripping business essentially since the last film three years ago. He has launched his custom furniture business. It's going okay. Um, but uh, then the Kings of Tampa, uh, minus Matthew McConaughey and Alex Pettifer, both of whom have apparently gone to Europe, um, or China, or somewhere. The rest of the kings come back into town. They say, we're going to this stripper convention. We're going to have a road trip. It's going to be awesome. And Mike decides, you know what? I'm going to go too. That's it. That's it for plot. They go to a convention. <laughs> That's literally it. It's, um, But it's kind of about them all getting their mojo back a little a little bit. It's a little bit um, pitch perfect too kind of story, but with Joe Manganiello as, uh, as Fat Amy. Um, because he steals all the funny bits. Um, uh, okay. And Mike okay. doesn't really have that much to do, like okay. Becky, you see. So uh, this is genuinely much more of an ensemble than it was last time because Matt Bomer and Joe both step up in a major way. Okay. Um, you also get Donald Glover coming in, you get Jada Pinkett-Smith coming in, you get Elizabeth Banks for about a minute and a half. Okay. Um, and it's it's really almost plotless, but it's just, for me anyway, I thought it was very fun to watch. The only major criticism I have is there's too much stri- stripping Genuinely, I don't need to see that much of it, honestly. Uh, while they're all extremely handsome men, um, I don't need them always to be stripping. Um, and I, and this is a straightforward comedy. I mean, the last one was a drama kind of masquerading as a comedy. Yes. Um, and this one is just a full-on comedy. But it does have one of the scenes of the year. It has um, a, a scene in a convenience store that honestly had me crying with okay. laughter. It's yeah. hilarious. Okay. Um, and it is a very... It, it, while it barely passes the the Bechdel test, if it does, it's a very female friendly film. This is a film about men who like women. It's also about men being men together and not having any women around for large parts of the film. But it's about men who like women, and uh, and essentially their job is making women happy uh, for a minute, and that's what they do. And its portrayal of that is really really interesting. So I really liked it. It is. It's, it's just like you guys. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I really liked it. Now, I'll be honest, Empire's given it two. I honestly don't understand that with the greatest of respect to this magazine. It, it's a really solid three for me um, because it's just so fun, so bubbly and so light. And yes, it doesn't have the substance of the last one, but, you know, it's it's essentially in a different genre. It's aliens to the last one's alien, if you will. Okay, interesting. So we, uh, we gave it two stars. Uh, Helen does not agree. Um, but is it, we should probably mention Steven Soderbergh's involvement in this. Yeah, so he was director of the last one. He's yeah. producing, editing, and and uh, cinematographing. Yes, this DPing at yes. this time. Okay. So uh, yeah, he didn't direct. It was uh, Gregory Jacobs. Gregory Jacobs and uh, and and Channam. He wrote this one, didn't he? 
uh, co-wrote it, I think, like the first yeah. one. Um, and again, he's he's good, but he he really does take a backseat. He doesn't he doesn't totally dominate it. It's very much an ensemble movie. He's mm-hmm. there. He's still adorable, mm-hmm. um, but it's not you know it's not all about him. And do we ever get to see? I mean, Magic Mike's Magic Mike wand. <laughs> um, no, you don't. Okay, and then two stars sent from Magic Mike XXL. Last but not least, this week we have another documentary from Asif Kapadia, uh, following on the exhaust trail of Senna. Uh, this is another look at an icon who sadly, tragically died too soon. Amy Winehouse in the simply titled Amy. Phil, you've spoken to Asif Kapadia about this film uh, more times. You've had hot dinners. <laughs> and I think you've seen this film more I've times. I've had two hot dinners. Yes. Um, I have, actually. I've seen it twice. I've, yeah. I've spoken to him twice. Um, once before... Is that like a contractual thing? Do you have to speak to him every time I have to speak to him. Every time I see the film, I have to speak to him. Yes, that's correct. Um, I've, I still have a phone call from Senna, actually, weirdly. But he, this is... Um, I'm really glad to have this to talk about because I've been quite miserable about certain films so far on the podcast. I hadn't noticed. Um, no, Okay. But I, this is fantastic. Asif Kapadia is very talented, not just as a documentary maker, but as a feature maker. Um, very hardworking and prolific. And he's he started, I think, in a good place, uh, like with Senna, for a documentary maker, in that he wasn't sort of enthralled to Amy Winehouse. I think he was very much aware of her and liked her music, but didn't know that much about her. So, you know, just as he wasn't massively a, a massive petrol head when he, when he started tackling Senna. So he, so he comes in objectively, and, he, and what he does really, really well in this film is he, he, he was kind of relentless in pursuing all the people that were close to Amy and getting access to them and sitting them down in, a, in literally a darkened room in Soho and interviewing them for a period of time. And that was a long process of winning their trust. The people that are close to Amy from when she was a kid play a prominent role throughout the story. And the fact that they kind of slightly fade from sight towards the end, as she falls in with Blake Field, a civil, and uh, and her father's influence comes to bear and she gets a new manager. She falls, those friends fall away. So it's kind of a story about friendship. But it's, it's really a story about this girl, this girl who grows up to be incredibly talented and has a real purity about her music. She just wants to sing, in, preferably in small jazz clubs. And she gets catapulted into the spotlight. And obviously we know, we know the story from the tabloids. Mm. But this is a whole different thing. I, I really didn't know that much about her um you sort of think you do but this this kind of opens it up and and she's very very she is kind of a movie star like senna was so she lends herself to the big screen um and how how much of her how much of amy do we see in the film we see a lot of it Uh, the 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 kind of camcorder footage is very very intimate again kapati is very good at winning people's trust um senna is an amazing calling card obviously so he's able to show people this which is how he got in with mitch winehouse in the first place i guess um, but he, he, it's tough on a lot of people. It's very tough on Mitch Winehouse that he's come out against it in the press. Mm-hmm. Uh, tough on Blake Fielder, Fielder Civil. It gives them, you know, the chance to speak. But um, it shows some of the things that happened were pretty egregious and, and, and contributed to, to, to Amy's kind of uh, demise. And uh, the, but the camcorder footage and the private snaps and the, and the, and the you know the way the story is put together in a mosaic of memories uh, and it's very intimate and it's very very moving. Um, I was quite close to giving it five stars. In the end, I went with four, mm-hmm. um, but it is kind of on the border. Mm. Uh, it's always a bit challenging with a documentary. It's like when you have a film like The Thin Blue Line where a man got, you know, freed from prison. It sets the bar pretty high. Um, but this is very, very close to that terrain. It's, it's, as I say, I've seen it twice. It's completely compelling. The music is is there throughout as well. You see lots of things you've never seen before about her life. And, and she's a really fascinating, sort of conflicting, conflicted person. And, yes. and I really recommend this film very, very highly. I'd, I'd agree with that, actually. Yeah. I think she's... Um, 
I, I again, I probably like Capellia. I was aware of her. I like, you know, I've got some of her music. I like it, mm. but I'm not like a super fan. And mm. this made me wish I was. Um, from the earliest, I mean, the, he's got recordings of her singing. The film starts when she's 14. She's singing just at a friend's party. It has her singing Moon River in a sort of big public performance at 16. It was there even at that age. And it's fascinating to sort of hear that. You also hear her, her isolated vocals recording Back to Black at one point, which is just incredibly moving, incredibly powerful, and especially because he always puts the context of her lyrics, or her lyrics in the context of her life, and you see just how personal, how autobiographical they were. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought it was absolutely fascinating and, and just an incredibly, you're right, incredibly moving, incredibly powerful stuff. Asa Kapadi is, uh, he's worked on a, f- a film, isn't he, Ali and Nino, which isn't a documentary, but it's amazing that this guy has suddenly come out of nowhere, I think, to become... What, a great documentarian over the last few years? Well. Yeah, uh, yeah I, he certainly, I mean, in common with most people that we assume are documentary makers, you know, they sort of Kevin McDonald's, James Marsh, obviously directed the theory, everything. They really usually become very, very good feature filmmakers. But he started out um, as a feature but filmmaker. But yeah, he started he out, he would away. certainly say he started out making, you know, short movies, short yeah. films. He was, at, he was at college in London. Um, and uh, so he does both, but yeah, he's very. You know, when I interviewed him the first time for this one, he was in a t- he was in Istanbul in his hotel room on a Saturday on his day off, talk- promoting Amy whilst finishing the shoot for um, for this big film. You know, which is going to be kind of something of a historical epic, and. Um, uh, it's, you know, he is someone that's going to be going places. His documentaries are absolutely fascinating. Like, there's a number of people that you'd like to see him make films about. Um, you know, you can imagine him making a film about sort of Maradona or someone like that. I think it would be phenomenal, or any number of sort of contemporary rock stars, um, or any public figure. Really, he's just got a real gift for for storytelling. Well, I'm a big fan of Amy Winehouse's music. I think this is going to be a, a fitting tribute uh, to her in many ways. Uh, we gave her four stars, as Phil said, but uh, as Phil also said, he was on the tipping point of five. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this week's Empire Podcast. Stick around after this if you want to hear us unload on Terminator Genesis uh, for a little bit. Uh, but do join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by Mark Wahlberg and Seth MacFarlane uh, here to do a TED2 talk. Uh, until then, it's goodbye. Well, until until then and immediately after this, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. Until then and indeed until right immediately after this, it's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to write my David Trimble biopic in which he is cloned multiple times. It's called the Trouble with Trimbles. It's, oh, it's, that's that's a good pun. Uh, see you next week. Unless you're sticking around for this. Bye. Right, Terminator Genesis, a spoiler special. Uh, we don't have a lot of time. Um, we could talk for hours about this one, I think. Where the hell do you begin? Who sent Pops back in time? Nobody knows. This movie ends with a voiceover uh, where uh, Sarah Connor... Is it Sarah Connor or Jai Courtney? This is how forgettable this film is. I can't even remember who does the voiceover. But the voiceover at the end says, there are many questions that we need answers. We will discover them together. Meaning, I think genuinely, the filmmakers would discover them together. Yeah, because it doesn't make any sense. Because if, if we leave it and... Uh, and Skynet's final strike has taken over John Connor and killed everybody else and controls the time machine thingy, Mm -hmm. then 
Then he did, then Skynet didn't send him back. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, he's supposed to have come from even further in the future? And if he came from even further in the future, then that doesn't make any sense either because then he would have known everything that was going to happen there with John Connor and would have been preparing for it. Yes. So he can't have done that either. But Nothing also, makes sense, Chris. But this this whole film is filled with people who have knowledge of the future managing to bugger it up in incredible ways. So the, yeah. the first the first sequence where um, they arrived back in 1984... And uh, the uh, the original Terminator T eight hundred is about to kill those absolutely appalling punks. I mean, terrible. My, my sir, I know Bill Paxton and uh, Brian Thompson and the other one, and you were no Bill Paxton, Brian Thompson, and the other one. These are people who don't even look as if you felt that the punks in the original Terminator were actual punks who'd been dragged off the street and then killed horribly. Uh, <laughs> hooray for that! Hooray I guess. for that! But yeah, for some reason, they, this is just—it just feels like actors from Central Casting. Anyway, so he arrives back, and he's about to kill him. He's about to do the whole thing, nice night for a walk, all that sort of stuff. And then Pops arrives, but instead of getting the drop on him, he announces his presence a good twenty, thirty seconds, gives himself time to walk around, to you know, walk yeah. slowly towards the T eight hundred. Meanwhile, Sarah Connor, who should surely already have been in position with the the big sniper rifle, is scrambling to get into position. It's like, you could have been there. When they arrive in 2017, Mm -hmm. Pops somehow allows himself to be stuck in traffic. How does Pops know where the T-800 is going to arrive? Because Sarah Connor wasn't there to see that. Kyle Reese wasn't there to see that. They didn't know that, did they? I don't think anybody knew that. All right. The only way that Sarah Connor could have known that Maybe it's stored is, in the computer in the future and Pops saw the computer in the future. Of course, that's that's got to be yep. it because Pops has a lot of knowledge about stuff that he couldn't possibly have knowledge of. Yeah, okay, fine, let's go. Uh, I'm guessing, anyway. <laughs> sure, uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll all be resolved in future sequels if they ever get around to doing the future sequels because, of course, the, the, the genesis of this film, if you will, was incredibly cynical. Basically, the rights to Terminator are referring back to James Cameron no matter what happens in 2019. So they have a um, finite... Uh, amount of time in which to make some money off the off the uh, the IP, uh, which is why they're talking about maybe doing two two or three more sequels and shoot them all back to back. Good luck with that, guys. Um, but it just it, when you, you're right, Phil. Earlier on, you talked about it, and when it, when a film comes from that sort of cynical place, we have to make a movie. We need to have an idea for it now. What's the idea? What's the idea? And someone goes, Sarah Connor is the one who saves Carl Reese in '84. She's waiting for him. What else have you got? Ah, Nothing. Yeah. And it just feels like that. The whole movie feels like it's scrambling to keep up with itself and scrambling desperately to justify itself. And it is so many plot holes. I I wish we had. I I wish we had more time. And there's at least three T-1000s that we see. So there's the one in 1973 that apparently kills her parents but then just walks off. I mean, it just disappears. You see Pops when she's she's looking up through the the slats of the the boardwalk. He has like a rocket launcher. He has a rocket launcher. But we've already established that that won't kill a T-1000. No, exactly. And we don't see him actually fire it. You yeah. just see him walking off with her. Yeah. There's no apparent comeback. So anyway, but there was one in 1973 who, let's say, could have survived to 1984 and to become Byung Han Lee yeah. and be the one who's waiting for Kyle Reese when he turns up fine. But then there's another one in 2017 that can't be the same one. So there's been at least two uh, T-1000s sent back in time. There's the there's the female FBI officer in 2017 who's also a T-1000 or thereabouts. Isn't... No, that's, uh, that's Jason the, Clark. Is it Jason Clark? That's Jason Clark morphs into her. Yeah, he morphs oh, into okay. her. Oh, yeah. okay. All right, fine. So there's only one unaccounted for T-1000. 
Yes, the one from 1973, who may well be beyond. Who may we? Okay, well, that's not quite so bad. Then. But this movie clearly means that Terminator 2 doesn't happen. But at the same time, yeah. you have Cyberdyne, which becomes a big deal. But Cyberdyne only becomes a big deal because of the Terminator exoskeleton, because but, of the Terminator hand and the Terminator CPU chip that are left behind at the end yeah. of the original Terminator. So now, that's those, why, that doesn't happen in this movie. Yeah, that doesn't happen, which is why Judgment Day doesn't happen in 1997. Yes, which is why John Connor then goes back in 2014, and because it explains it. So yeah. he, he arrived in 2014 out yes. of nowhere and, and then gave them the technology they need to build a time machine for what purpose? Oh, and yeah, they just say, oh, you know, just development, you know, because yeah. it'll be cool to have a time machine in the basement or whatever. Time machine, yeah. And you're helping us with our piece of software so we have enough money to do that? Odd. Yeah. Um, it's like Google Fridays, you know. Yeah, it's right. So he's building a time machine in 2017, so it'll be around in 2029 so he can use it to send himself back. Is that basically I mean, what he's doing? I don't... But what? surely Skynet has resources in the future to build a time machine without Danny Dyson. When, when, um, <laughs> when they escape <laughs> in the truck... You're going to have to be more specific. When they escape in... <laughs> <laughs> happens a lot. When they escape in the truck from 1984... Yeah. Right. And she's driving, mm-hmm. and it's got that bit of, like, the T-1000 yeah. stuck to the back. Okay. I don't know how they got there. Or what exactly that is, a tracking device of yeah, some description? Yeah, I think it's meant to be a tracking device. And it, no, the T-1000 can reabsorb it and it absorb the yeah. information. And they're like, well, it knows where we're going to be because of that thing. Yeah, which are, so. Which Arnie spotted and then shoots off belatedly. Yeah. But they keep going. Yes, so how does it find so, it it's like it, I mean, it knows where you are now, but like you've driven for another, like, through the night. It extrapolates. I mean, there's a nice idea in how to what? kill the T-1000 with that sort of acid Yeah, that trap. was cool. That's, that's quite fun. That was okay. That was quite fun. But then what it... What tends to lead to I mean I've, I've read several reviews ago at least the movie keeps moving at least it keeps it doesn't it slows down for tons of exposition that dreadful scene where Kyle Reese because I didn't buy the love story between those two for one second you bought it in the Terminator yeah very you much you bought it because when we talked about we didn't talk about just how wrong Jai Courtney is in this movie mm. uh, and it might well, we'll get on to Amelia Clark as well but Jai Courtney is being singled out for a lot of criticism uh, for this movie I thought he was very good in Jack Reacher I'll be honest. I thought he was he was very effective as the bad guy as the, and as the muscle. Um, but since then, I think he's he's wavered slightly. He was good day to die hard. Nobody came out of that one with any credit, and I think it's going to be the same with this one. Um, but he plays Kyle Reese. His take on Kyle Reese is all wrong. Kyle Reese in the nineteen eighty four original is emaciated. Mm-hmm. He is a freedom fighter living in ruins. Where did you get the protein to have a six pack like that? Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense and also you can sense the desperation and the fear of Kyle Reese when he sees a Terminator when he confronts a Terminator in 1984 he knows he cannot beat the Terminator all he can do is try desperately to keep Sarah Connor and himself alive um, and he genuinely you can feel that he has fixated on this woman that he has developed a relationship with her which no matter how weird and creepy that may be at least you can feel the passion coming mm. off him uh, Jack Courtney seems to play this as some sort of lumbering wisecracking Hulk who takes nothing in front of him seriously whatsoever um, and that that was a major problem for me yeah I feel, I feel like just the way he looks is wrong fundamentally wrong and you know with all respect to him I, I agree he's been really good sometimes in the past but he just fundamentally it's miscasting it's really really bad miscasting and actually while I think Amelia Clark does better yeah um, she's also fundamentally 
not right. Yeah, I, I, I um, agree. In a way that, again, you know, like Lena, Lena Headey wasn't was right. You know, was was actually actually a very good Sarah Connor. Obviously, Linda Hamilton remains untouched as the ultimate and right Sarah Connor. Yeah, but you've got to have some of that energy. And it, it just felt like she was really stretching for it because she physically, again, looks so different. She's so, she's small. She's very pretty. She's very fresh faced. She looks yeah. about 12 years old all the way through the film. And it just, it just doesn't quite work for me. You can see why everyone accepted the parts because you couldn't turn that down. But at the same time, yeah, you know, it's Maybe a little bit of a poison a bit, chalice. Yeah. I didn't hate Jason Clark as John Connor. I did hate what they did to him. And it's the yes. same thing that it, it, in Salvation they flirted with and then, you know, I think kind of drew back from the whole mm. John, Con- John Connor is a, ter- a Terminator, which just doesn't fundamentally make a heck of a lot of sense. But no, it was just, I, he couldn't decide from one minute to the next if he was trying to recruit them for no reason or trying to kill them. What was the recruitment thing? If, if he infected them with like nanobots... I don't know, are nanobot people fertile? Could they then give birth to him? What the heck is he doing? Yeah, does he just want to keep them safe when the uh, uh, the apocalypse comes? And but I, why? I, I, why? Why does would, he care? Would he not rethink the apocalypse? I mean, it, this is the thing, because he is no longer Skynet. Okay, so he is something different. As he says, I'm not man, I'm not machine, I am more. He is... John Connor was fused with Skynet's sensibilities, but there's still enough of John Connor there for him to actually want to go and find his mum and his dad in that laughable scene that Nick uh, turned to me during the, during the movie and said, this is like a funny or die sketch. This is it's it's so, so shambolic. Yeah. Um, that scene where he goes, oh, actually, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm evil after all, and, but mom, dad, come and live with me, we'll be fine. But yeah, he, he, so he's John Connor with Skynet's sensibilities. So he's not necess- he doesn't necessarily need to, to blow up the world anymore. He has seen what the world is like in 2029. Mm. Surely he would know there are better ways to wipe out humanity yeah. than just a nuclear holocaust. Oh. So the, why is he trying to precipitate a nuclear holocaust? Also, what is Genesis? It's so vaguely defined uh, what it is and how it's going to take control of everything and wipe everything out, uh, well, everyone out. It's basically Skynet, isn't it? But it's yeah. all, the idea is, it's oh, it's on your phones and it's on your yeah. fridges and it's on the military, so it'll just take over everything as soon as it... But why is there a countdown? Is- why is there a ticking clock? Surely it's ready to launch at any time. Why doesn't it just Yeah, launch? well, that's, that's a good question. Like, if, it, if, if they've already been testing it and it's in beta, then why is it still developing before it launches? That doesn't make, I mean, from a computer point of view, any sense. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, you know, there are all sorts of really interesting ideas you can explore about the singularity when, when AI becomes more powerful than human intelligence and start, starts multiplying at a crazy rate. Mm. That's a genuinely scary thing that people are genuinely writing quite serious academic articles about right now. And if you sat and did some research for a few months, you could come up with some really scary, scary scenarios to work into your Terminator movie. And I think that was, this was their attempt to do that. But I just don't think it quite gets there. I also think that we should ban all action sequences on the Golden Gate Bridge and just give it a rest. It's had a bad summer already with San Andreas and it's just gotten worse. Yeah. Um, that it's, it's hackneyed. Okay, it's just, I'm sorry, Hollywood, no more Golden Gate Bridges for you. I'm yeah. taking it off you. You've got to leave it alone. No, absolutely. I, I totally agree with that. And uh, no more Terminator movies for a while as well. But I mean, here's, here's the thing about this. I mean, I wrote the other day on Twitter... I'd love to see a Terminator movie where they go, to tra- they travel in time to 2019, just hand rides back to James Cameron and then quietly walk away. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But the, the point is, with this movie, this movie has... This is the tipping point now. There are five Terminator movies. Three of them have been dreadful. I like the end of Rise of, Rise of the Machines, but the movie itself is yeah. dreadful. Terminator Salvation is so bland and forgettable, I honestly can't remember a thing about it. Two great films, three terrible films. We're, reached, we're at the tipping point. The, the franchise now is toxic. It feels to me that even when the rights do refer to James Cameron in 2019, even if he did want to do anything with them, I don't think he could for a few years yet. And that's the biggest shame. I really wish we had more time to talk about this. There's a lot more we could get into, but someone is banging on the door. It's probably Arnold. <laughs> so we need to go. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this. Um, and maybe we'll do something extra on Periscope next week. Maybe we will. Who knows? Uh, brilliant. Phil, Helen, thanks. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>